Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, a cross trainer gathering dust. And I'm Leah Richards. Not just ruining your diet, but ruining your diet with three scoops of Belgian chocolate gelato drizzled in caramel sauce and scattered with toasted mini marshmallows. How is everyone's New Year's doing? How are your New Year's resolutions doing? Because ours didn't happen in the first place, so we can't have broken them. But if you're thinking about eating well and getting fit, then we will support you with support and love from a safe distance and the comfort of our sofa. You know, you do you. Getting fit is for when it's an alright temperature to leave the house at all, as far as I'm concerned. Wait till February when all the New Year's resolutioners give up, and then there'll be plenty of space in the gym. Boom. That's the kind of smart thinking that you're here for, and that we've got for you with some science news from all across the world to fill in the gaps between the quality street, the celebrations, and any other forms of tiny chocolates you might have consumed over the festive period. Many brands are available. Christmas seems so far away now, but we are literally only two weeks into this brand new year. Let's make it a good one. Starting off with the most sciencey headline I have seen in a good long while. This is some good sci-fi type science. This is the future, you guys. This is like proper science. Proper MIT science. This is actually from MIT. <laughs> that does make it proper MIT science, no matter what they were studying in the first place. The headline reads, Engineers create an inhalable form of messenger RNA. Now, in case you haven't done an A-level in biology lately, messenger RNA is the mechanism by which your cells decide which proteins to make. If you think of the DNA in your cells as the recipe with which the rest of your body is made, then mRNA is the bit that goes through and goes, hmm, yes, no, the kneecaps look good, I'll have the kneecaps, and tells your body now is the time for kneecap. If the DNA is actually the written down recipe of how you make a person, the messenger RNA is like bags of flour on wooden spoons. I'm trying to work a lick the spoon in there somewhere. Don't lick the messenger RNA. Well... Actually, maybe lick the messenger RNA if it's to treat your mouth disease. Or, if you have lung disease, possibly in the future you might be able to huff it. Let's move on from our attempts at allegory, and instead quote Dr. Daniel Anderson, assistant professor in MIT's Department of Chemical Engineering, and member of MIT's Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research and Institute for Medical Engineering and Science, what a long institute name, who says, We think the ability to deliver mRNA via inhalation could allow us to treat a range of different diseases of the lung. And I think he might be right. Lots of research in medicine, especially in cancer medicine, is looking at using DNA and DNA programming and genetic engineering to treat a disease which is largely itself based on genetic mutations. That you have lots of different things that can happen to the DNA, the instructions for making cells and bits of your body that will make cancer instead, because that's quite a lot like the cells in your body. Now, my impression of genetic treatments for cancer is that they are more about epigenetics turning bits of code on and off, whereas this is specifically sending in the mRNA molecule to force the body to produce a protein for a specific purpose. So in this initial test, they've given their lab mice mRNA that codes for a bioluminescent protein. Bioluminescent proteins are a really good way to see if your method of transfection or transduction of genetic material works, because you can get some very small fluorescent proteins. They used to be large and unwieldy, but then 40, 50 years ago, some guy realized, oh wait, if we just chop this bit out, 
the big red glowing protein that we've been trying to make do with, we can make a small green one instead. He's probably retired to a tropical beach somewhere, and I wouldn't blame him because people use that technique all the time. And yeah, if you inspect the lung tissue from these mice, you will be able to quite easily see which cells have had the uptake of mRNA, which introduces the code for this fluorescent protein, because, well, it stands out. Don't you just love that the proof of concept for basically all genetics is making things glow in the dark? I mean, what else are we in this game for? <laughs> so, a little bit of background here. The researchers wanted to create an inhalable form of mRNA, which would allow material and molecules to be delivered directly to the lungs, because, well, existing drugs for asthma and other lung diseases are specially formulated to be inhaled via an inhaler, and sprays, powdered medications, they work quite well for introducing a wide spread of material directly to the lungs, rather than swallowing a tablet and waiting for that to dissolve, or an injection, because that's just ways away from the lungs. So if you can get it right to the source of the problem, then you could have a much quicker acting solution to whatever lung disease you are treating. And while lots of those drugs do work quite well, they have potential side effects, and for... Genetic conditions, like cystic fibrosis, it's only ever alleviating symptoms rather than actually solving the problem. Whereas if you can make the epithelial cells of the lung produce what they need in the first place, you can make a big difference. Later on in the article, they mention respiratory distress syndrome caused by a deficiency in surfactant proteins. What's going to happen there is the inside surface of your lungs are going to chafe on each other, which... Yeah, is distressing. A horrible thought. So if you can just send in the right molecules to instruct those epithelial cells to produce the surfactant, suddenly it stops being a problem. Now, the mRNA in question, you can actually get a lot of that quite easily if you know the right kind of guy, and I'm pretty sure the people at MIT are the right kind of guy. But stabilising the mRNA to be introduced in an inhalable form, that's the tricky part. So, when they set out to stabilise RNA during the process of delivery, they came across a material called polyethylenamine, or PEI for short, which could be delivered to the lungs but does not break down easily. So, they tried to manage the side effects by developing a different shape of molecule, a positively charged polymer called hyperbranched polybeta-aminoesters, which, unlike PEI, are biodegradable. These are spheres, about 150 nanometers in diameter, which tangle with a mixture of the polymer and mRNA molecule, in this case to encode luciferase, the bioluminescent protein that they were introducing to the rat lungs. And then, you inhale, suddenly, a warm glow fills you from the inside. Or just a glow glow fills you from the inside. Yeah, I mean, since it's uh, probably green, it's probably quite cool in tone. I mean, I'm very interested in this as a method of treating all sorts of things. Obviously, the implications for uh, cystic fibrosis and things have already been mentioned. I'm wondering if you could inject the right mRNA into, say, type 1 diabetics' pancreases and have them producing insulin so that they don't have to actually inject it, for example. There is a lot of stuff you can do with genetic engineering, and as long as you go through the proper ethics approval... I'm sure there are people out there, especially for diseases that are lifelong chronic illnesses, that would like to see a more reasonable solution than ongoing course of injections. And they do say that the nebulized form, the aerosol that they were using here, the bioluminescent protein, could be seen 24 hours after administration, 
The amount of protein gradually fell over time as it was cleared, and for chronic lung diseases this might have to be reformulated, it's something to work on, but I think that this could be a very significant step forwards to a more manageable way of managing your disease. Yeah, science. What a cracking way to get a new year and a new episode started. Doing the most sciencey thing possible with the most sciencey sort of people to just make your life better. And I think that's the kind of message we want to spread. Do good. Do better. However, whilst we are spreading this message of good hope and cheer in a brand new 2019, not everyone is quite so... optimistic. And given the last couple of years, you can hardly blame people who think that there's a lot of fear and hate out there in the world, and especially in the news that they consume. But according to research from the University of Buffalo, whether you're a conservative or a liberal news consumer will affect the way in which you deal with that emotion in your news content. The two topics being questioned here are perceptions of politics, especially the 2016 election cycle, and global warming. It seems pretty consistently that across the political spectrum, people experiencing fear in relation to an issue are likely to seek more information about it. People experiencing anger about an issue are likely to judge how informed they are about the subject as being higher quicker. You can try and dig in through the paper to see who is reacting more to different things. There's some breakdown, but I'm not sure that this paper goes far enough in trying to segment who is reacting to what, because the press release they've given here only deals with one audience type and one topic type. So, for example, they detail that conservatives who sensed fear about the election reported a high need for information, whereas liberals who felt angry about climate change were more sure of their pre-existing knowledge about climate change and how they could make decisions based on that. They've not reported how liberals felt if they were angry about the election, or how conservatives felt if they were scared about climate change. Like, there's a few corners missing from the cross-comparison diagram here. And actually, the quote from Janet Yang, the paper's lead author and expert in the communication of risk information related to science, health and the environment, says... Fear and anger had very different influences on information processing strategies. These emotions also drive conservatives and liberals in distinctive ways. But that doesn't at all come across in the rest of the press release. Because it's not comparing like for like at all. Mm. It seems to, pretty consistently, experiencing fear about a subject pushes someone to seek further information about it and to process that information more carefully and systematically. When you look at the news cycle covering the American election, you see a lot of fear being reinforced, which might make people want to stick around in a particular news channel or news outlet so they can know more, that they are learning more, and then take on more and more of the perhaps biased information being pushed by this channel. Whereas if something is being reported with anger, then they want you to know what you know and go with that and don't let anyone tell you otherwise because you've got your feelings and they've got to be right. Whether or not this bears out, I think is going to be a subject for debate and analysis for years yet to come. Right now, just pointing at the TV and fear and anger is a safe bet because we're here with our words trying to make you feel a certain way. Hopefully that way is optimistic, encouraged, curious. But whether these words mean the same thing to you as they do to us is, well, we'll leave that to the University of Göttingen. And what the University of Göttingen have been doing is trying to work out why we have feelings about certain words. 
The press release opens by mentioning a pair of knitted socks which might have a particular emotional weight if they happen to be the last thing Grandma knitted for you before she died. Or I'd suggest if they are the first thing you ever knitted for yourself. Don't start with socks, they're complicated. But the attachment of positive or negative emotions to things, to experiences, to words, that is the human basis of emotion, and the new research published in the journal Neuropsychologia kind of just puts that to a place in the brain using EEG scans to find that when the brain processes various stimuli, it can react within about 200 to 300 milliseconds for positive associations, but only 100 milliseconds for the emotion of loss, for negative feelings. So I guess you feel bad quicker than you feel good? You are aware of the negative connotation of a word or phrase faster than you are aware of a positive connotation of a word or phrase, but you learn the positive connotations quicker than the negative ones. So that's a fair trade-off, if you ask me. And they tested this by learning positive and negative connections with neutral signs, words and faces by a system of giving a reward when a particular word comes up, or always taking away from that pot when another word comes up. You know what this makes me think of? Because I'm forming associations that have emotional connections in my oh. brain, and you can spot them with an EEG. The work of Minnesota and New York-based rapper Dessa, who has spent the last year, maybe two years, working on a new album. They've had a book come out as well called My Own Devices. They've done TED Talks, even, about loss and locating that feeling in the brain and especially heartache she details very specifically the inability she's had of getting over an ex in her life and taking that to neuroscientists and asking how can i get rid of this feeling this negative association in my brain that i see in this person's face when i see their name on my phone i mean it's not just a negative association for her i would highly recommend actually everybody looks up her tedx talk about this process of basically mapping out exactly where the complicated feelings for her ex and the inability to get over him are dwelling in her brain and then trying to zap them out. She then printed out that bit of her brain real big, covered it in glitter and made a disco ball out of it. I mean, why not? I do want to mention one of the pictures that accompanies this is a portrait of Dr. Louisa Cook, first author on the study, doing her best impression of a modern day Hamlet, all in black with a model brain in her hand. And the research is being done in Denmark. I feel like they've done this on purpose. There's only so much coincidence in the world. Maybe someday someone will write a take on Hamlet that involves, instead of a prince, a neuroscientist. So I guess that's two stories for one where we can say that science might be able to tell you about how you feel, but we can't tell you how you feel. Like, scientists should uh, maybe back away from humans having emotions and not try and just put a thermometer somewhere. Just let people feel sometimes. Let's move on to some less hard science, to more arts, more creativity, more bringing disciplines together. In a truly wonderful bit of archaeology, if you happen to be the sort of person who pays a great deal of attention to early pottery, and I'm not sure how big an overlap our audience has with people who have an intense interest in early pottery. You might be aware of the Jomon people of Japan, so named, because they make these pots. They're very early pots. They are typically decorated by 
pressing things into the surface of the wet clay. And something else that has been included in this wet clay is lots and lots of weevils. Mies weevils, specifically of the Dryopthorinae subfamily, are quoted here as a destructive pest of stored rice and grains, and that Jomon period pottery and pottery fragments containing foreign body impressions have been collected at multiple archaeological sites around Japan showing their historic bothersome nature. They were specifically looking at pots collected from various sites on the island of Hokkaido, and gosh, they've learned a lot from finding some dead bugs in an old pot. And this press release goes into some of the previous studies from 2010-2012. The most recent finding, though, is that the team, led by Professor Obata of Kumamoto University in Japan, by piecing together different fragments, different bits of pottery to restore all of this one Jomon-era pot, they have calculated that it contained impressions and carapaces from about 500 weevils in a single pot, which is about as many weevils as I would possibly want to put in a pot. Comparing their ceramic weevil findings, the team have discovered that the body length of maize weevils from eastern Japan was about 20% longer than western Japan, which they have connected to the food stores prevalent in those areas, sweet chestnuts in eastern Japan and acorns in western Japan, the chestnuts having more nutritional value for your average weevil. And I just wish I could have been there for the moment at which someone comes running into the room saying, we've found the fifth hundred weevil in this one pot. Everyone goes, wow, that's a lot of weevils. And you know what? They're weirdly big. Who in the world was there to connect <laughs> that these weevils were different size weevils from similar era pot? That must be such a small LinkedIn circle of people doing weevil-related research I in Jomon era pottery. I think it's just this handful of people are really focused on these pot weevils. Honestly, if you want to become a scientist, get ready to get really into one very specific thing. But hey, you might make a wonderful discovery, like 500 weevils in one pot. This is such a good niche to find yourself in. We know doctors who are doing just space, materials, brains. Like, there's a lot of stuff you can do with that, but I uh, know. If you're going to be professor of something at Kumamoto, Japan, be professor of how many weevils can you fit in a thousand-year-old pot? <laughs> oh, I'm sure you could fit more weevils in the pot itself if you were going to fill the pot with weevils. They have used this as evidence that people from islands further south brought chestnuts to Hokkaido where they are not native. And Professor Obata also says... The meaning of a large amount of adult maize weevils in pottery wasn't touched upon in detail in my paper. However, I believe the Jomon people mixed the weevils into the pottery clay with the hope of having a good harvest. And why not? You've got CT scans, you've got trade routes, you've got science, you've got archaeology, you've got history, you've got anthropology. This is all of that multidisciplinary study that we've been calling for. For like the last year, we're asking people to get weird, get interdisciplinary, make connections, and Professor Abata is out there doing it. Thank you, Professor. And while we're talking about teamwork, shall we move on to this story where some very helpful students are giving us a beautiful demonstration of bad posture? And in fact, it is captioned, two San Francisco State University students show how people can press their neck at the computer. Essentially, San Francisco State University would like you to pay attention to your posture and sit up straight. For heaven's sake, you're going to hurt yourself. 
It's not just your mum or teacher or somebody in your life who's going around saying, oh, you're going to give yourself a pain in the neck. Oh, it's going to hurt your back. Oh, oh, my bones. Oh. Your physiotherapist will also have this advice. Your doctor will also have this advice. San Francisco State University also has this advice. If you are leaning your head forward in order to look at a laptop screen that's on the desk in front of you, you are going to do yourself a damage. You are going to cause yourself upper back pain. And according to the survey of students published in the journal Biofeedback, when you are not scrunching your neck, you can turn your head further without pain. If you are scrunching your neck down, you might experience pain whilst turning your head and in the neck and head and eyes. Like, it's just bad to do. Please don't do it. I felt myself doing it a lot at work today that I was slouching down in my chair and my back was starting to go. And I knew that we were going to recall this tonight. And I thought, aha. San Francisco State University would not allow this, and I sat up straight in my chair for like 30, 40 seconds and then began to slump down again, but then I remembered. And I think this might be the start of a good habit, a good New Year's resolution, to adopt more upright posture. In fact, specifically, the recommendation is if you suffer from headaches or neck and back aches from computer work, check your posture and make sure your head is aligned on top of your neck as if held by an invisible thread from the ceiling. You can do something about this poor posture very quickly. In fact, they even advise replicating the head-forward, neck-scrunched position so that you're more aware when you start to do it. When you're at your desk and you've got a laptop on the desk, but obviously the laptop's not really at an ergonomic height for you to look at it while your back is straight, so you sort of slump your shoulders forward and scrunch your neck down like a caveman. And I've just started doing it and my neck already hurts. If there's someone in your office place who's, you know, the workplace health and safety advisor or some such, they've done the three-day training scheme, chat with them. Get the supportive stools, the back supports you need. It really is an investment in your health and not having your head fall off. It's for the best. <laughs> Trust us. That's science. Yeah, genuinely, one of my colleagues has just had a month off because of back pain caused by an incorrectly adjusted monitor. So, you know... Is Skynet playing the long game and it's just trying to pick <laughs> off humans in like the long term scenario where we all just get too weak and enfeebled to actually fight back when the Terminators come? They're actually trying to make sure that only humans who practice the Alexander Technique can survive. The next generation of humans will be superbly tall. Wait, no, no, they're just carrying themselves upright. Huh. For more research on what you can do with your head and the various shapes that you can put it in, have a listen to our guest spot on the most recent episode of Song Appeal, where we talk about tilting your head and what the bare-naked ladies might have known about it all along. You can find that at Song Appeal on most places where you find podcasts. If you want to hear more about genetic engineering and cancer cures, then go back and listen to episode 26, which is Eureka Nerd versus Breast Cancer, where we talk about all kinds of different ways to try and treat disease. If you want to hear more from us generally, then stick around, and maybe throw us a couple of bucks on Kofi. That's Kofi.com forward slash Eureka Nerd. Honestly, though, I can very much relate to what San Francisco State University is getting at because I spent a lot of time as a participant in youth theatre being taught how to hold myself correctly for presence and comfort. And now every time I see someone hunching shoulders, I have to resist the urge to physically grab them and rotate them back. Also, every time someone complains about being fat but slouches all the time, I'm like, oh my god. If you stood up straight, your belly would not be a problem. I mean, also, your belly's not a problem, but if you stand up straight, it 
holds it all in more. You can also find us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter and forward slash Eureka Nerd on Facebook. For any emails, if you want to tell us about all the ways in which you are mostly sticking to a New Year's resolution or anything that's really tempting you to break it. Or in fact, spectacular ways you've broken your New Year's resolutions, that would be good. You can send those to EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. But before we part ways, just a few more quick stories to tide you over until we see you again next. Like the news from the Data Science Institute at Columbia that surgeons under stress make mistakes. Now the one that really alarms me about this is that medical errors cause between 250,000 to 440,000 deaths annually in the US. That's a lot! That's a lot of mistakes! For such a populous nation, that is still quite a lot. And they pay a lot for their medical care! That's their mistake. Now, be fair, that is a long-standing cultural mistake that the entire nation of America has been making, not individual Americans. Lots of individual Americans look at the national health services of places like the UK and France and Canada and go, maybe I shouldn't have to choose which finger to be reattached depending on how much my insurance will cover. Well, maybe those people will also not be surprised from the research from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which has found that in the last couple of years we have seen record wet and record dry months increasing worldwide. You know, that climate change thing is still happening. Hey! Save the world. And stand up straight. <laughs> the two lessons from Eureka Nerd for this week. Fix your posture. And save the world. But until next time, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. I mean, also, your belly's not a problem, but if you stand up straight, it holds it all in more. Hey, listener at home, want to hear all the bones we can pop due to our posture? Let's start off with fingers. Ready? This isn't posture, though. This is just us having airy joints. This is just some bad, bad ASMR. Uh, head and neck? Oh, I've just done mine. It won't Ooh. go. Oh, this one. Shoulders? Elbows? Oh, oh, that was a proper squelch. Listen to that wrist go. Hang on, let me see if I can get my... That's my ankle. Ooh. I'm not going to try and get my toes up here because I'm sat comfortably on the sofa, but they will pop right off. Remember that time we really scared the yoga teacher? <laughs> <laughs> Just put that in as the bumper at the end. <laughs>